drop. Hi everyone, you're listening to Storyfort Presents Voices of Treefort Music Fest. This is a weekly podcast that dives into the stories behind Boise's Festival of Discovery. I'm Allison Meyer from the Storyfort team. This week on the podcast, we're bringing you an interview that Joe Davidson and I recorded a couple months ago with local playwright Grace Ward and director and dramaturg Emma Cordray. Grace was a recipient of one of the COVID Cultural Commissioning or CCC fund grants that were awarded this summer through Treefort as well as through the Morrison Center for the Performing Arts and the Boise City Department of Arts and History. And Grace actually read some of her work at one of the Bloom events that Storyfort hosted at the Idaho Botanical Garden over the summer. But there were unfortunately some technical issues with that recording and we wanted to invite her on the podcast instead. And we wanted to bring Emma into the conversation as well. Grace and Emma have been collaborating remotely on some projects, and we had a really good talk about that process and about what it's like to have a strong creative partnership. They do a really good job of introducing each other, actually, at the beginning of the interview, so I will wrap up this intro. But I did want to let you know that Storyfort will be collaborating with Grace and a team of local actors, playwrights, and directors on a reading series. It will be called Playing to the Void and it's kicking off early next year, so keep an eye out for that. And in the meantime, uh, visit treefortmusicfest.com for information on a couple of outdoor Halloween events that Storyfort is hosting this month. One is a reading at the Idaho Botanical Garden on October 24th, and the other is a Scary Fort event at Kin on October 31st. Uh, Tickets are limited, but they are on sale now, so buy them fast. Okay, that's all I have for now. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome into our uh, our digital studio. We're in Zoom right now. Uh, Grace, Emma, why don't you just start by introducing yourselves and telling us a little about what you do? Can I introduce Emma? And yeah, Emma that'd be introduce sweet. me. Okay. Yeah, go for it. Amazing. All right. So everyone, this is Emma Cordray. Emma Cordray uh, is studying directing at Carnegie Mellon University. She is an incredible maker of theater. I met Emma at the National Theater Institute. Um, and one of my favorite memories of her is when we had a lab project and Emma ordered on Amazon like materials to use for a presentation because she knew exactly like what she wanted. Um, Emma is currently working on the development of at least four new musicals, um, including my musical Blink and then three others. She's also working with me on some other projects like a series of essays and she reads everything I write pretty much uh, whether I want her to or not. She has so much vision as an artist and I'm in love with her, Emma Cordray. Oh, also, she's in Michigan right now. Is that where you are? Okay. It is. I'm a that is where I am. Wow, that was so a much better introduction than I could have possibly given myself. Um, thank you, Grace. Thank you, thank you. Um, 
yeah, that hit all the that hit all the points. Uh, this is Grace Ward. Grace Ward is a student at Boise State University, where she studies theater. And I like to think of Grace less in terms of all the many things in theater that she can do and does do, but more in terms of the few things she can't do, which is pretty much nothing. Um, Grace is a lighting designer, a scenic designer, a playwright, a librettist, a composer, an actor, a singer. Um, Am I missing anything? <laughs> a stage manager, a stage manager. Um, and among many other things, she plays many instruments. Uh, she basically, anything that you could possibly want in a theater from focusing a light to writing a full musical, Grace can do. Uh, Grace, I met Grace at the National Theater Institute at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center where we were studying together. And um, one of my earliest memories of her is that when we were, we go to London for a little residency um, and we were going to see Cirque du Soleil together. And right before Grace turns to me and she said, I have to let you know that I often just weep uncontrollably at spectacle. And I said, Grace, that is so okay because I do that too. And it was an instant bond and I knew I had to work with her. Um, and we have since, a few months after that, I've been working and collaborating on, um, basically, as she said, I read everything that she writes because I'm obsessed with her and her work, and um, we're working together on Blink, her musical, as well as her plays such as So You Want to Start a Cult, among others, and we're working on a project of essays, um, and basically, I am obsessed with Grace and just want to get in any room that she's in. Um, she is wonderful, wonderful collaborator and a brilliant artistic mind, and she is a Boise local. Fantastic. Those were both awesome introductions. Yeah. No, I'm going to start crying. Yeah, it's just, it's just already off the bat, yeah, sobbing on a podcast. Yeah. I want to hop on to that Cirque du Soleil story because I feel like it's really important to, we, when we were in London, we saw plays pretty much every night we were there with our class. That was like part of, a huge part of our learning process. So we saw like 13 plays, 12 or 13 in London, and we went to the symphony. We were just seeing shows all the time. But when we saw Cirque du Soleil, this was our our single night off of the whole time we were in London um, and we all like we'd gone to the symphony that afternoon and I was leaving the symphony and I didn't know what I was going to do with my single night off um, but our hostel was two blocks away from is it the Royal Albert Hall where Lucia the Cirque du Soleil show had residency and I was like oh my god this is the chance like you we have to go see Cirque du Soleil too and Emma and a couple other people just happened to be going and so I just like hopped on that train and so I think we were like we saw a show every single night we were in London that's amazing wow that's that a testament like... to our absolute obsession we could yeah. not <laughs> we were like one night off we we're like great what are we gonna see <laughs> yeah well, and in England, the dark day, like in America, the equity dark day is Mondays. So there's like no plays on Mondays. But in England, Emma, correct me if I'm wrong, it's Sundays. So this was our Sunday and most plays weren't showing on Sunday nights. So everyone was like, ah, we can't go see like Les Mis West End, um, which I totally would have gone see because I'm obsessed with Les Mis. Um, but Cirque du Soleil, because it's not like an actor's equity or whatever the British equivalent is, they had a show. So of course we went. How did you both get into musical theater to begin with? Come on, I don't know this about you. You go first. Oh my goodness, did I, I okay, for myself or for you? Okay. For you. <laughs> um, 
So I come from a very musical family, though none would self-identify as artists. Um, I would say from a a family of art appreciators. And I grew up seeing a lot of musicals, going a lot to uh, the children's theater that my mom volunteered at, and uh, basically consuming a lot of theater. And I was a very shy kid, but I would like somehow belt out like musical songs. Um, and I knew that I wanted to perform in musicals and um, finally started doing that in like late elementary school and kind of got the bug. Um, but at the time I was also a synchronized swimmer very intensely. So I was like trying to split, trying to be a synchronized swimmer and play piano and cello and also perform in musicals, which I realized I really wanted to do. Well, also I was like, I want to be a surgeon. So all these different things were happening. And um, when I was after, uh, after when I was going into high school, I went to Interlochen Arts Camp for the first time in their musical theater program. And it was the first time that I had spent like a concentrated amount of time doing musical theater and knew after that, that I needed to just keep doing it. And so I quit synchronized swimming and um, moved forward into performing really intensely and did that throughout high school. And then I was planning on, um, auditioning for musical theater programs for to perform uh, but I realized that I was just really excited about process and also really excited about the more creative side of it and being on the other side of the table and I wanted I wanted I think a little bit of like creative control but also I was <laughs> really um, I was less excited by kind of the redundancy of performing a show night after night. And I wanted something um, that was a little bit more invigorating for me personally. I personally didn't find that performing did that for me. So I, um, I switched into dramaturgy and um, went to Carnegie Mellon and was in their dramaturgy program and then uh, transferred into their directing program. As soon as I, on my first day of directing class, I had never considered directing and I was like, oh my God, I have to do this now. Um, and that's pretty much how that went. But I always consumed musicals, always was an absolute musical fanatic. And like all through high school, I could probably tell you every single Broadway.com vlog I watched. I could tell you every like ensemble member of every Broadway show that was in anything. Um, so I was just absolutely obsessed with musical theater. Um, but I went, yeah, so I went to college and then I was like, oh my gosh, only plays are serious theater. And so I strayed away from musicals for a few years and then obviously found my way back because it's been kind of my first love in the theater. And it's a large part of what I do now. Awesome. Uh, what about you, Grace? You... Oh. <laughs> Never mind. Sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. I want to know, Emma, how did you get to NTI? What was your, like, inciting there? Um. I went to NTI because I was really excited by the program's focus on interdisciplinarity. At uh, the school that I go to, it's a conservatory. And because of that, I had tried so hard to break between all the different lanes and take a bunch of different classes in different areas. Um, but it's just not quite a program that's built for that. And I was really excited about NTI because it is built for that um, and that kind of collaboration and also learning. And I was also really excited about NTI because of the New Works development. That is such a big part of the O'Neill's culture. And also to meet other, you know, kind of like-minded theater people from across the country. Enough about me, Grace, take it away. <laughs> okay. okay, yeah. And for, I guess, people who are probably listening and don't know, the National Theater Institute is a, like, educational semester program um, at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Institute in Connecticut. 
So the Eugene O'Neill Center is where they, they do a lot of new play and new musical development through the summer. And then they transition into more of an educa educational role during the school semester where they're working with a small cohort of artists in a conservatory style. Um, so I had like such a different entry to theater than Emma did because my parents are musicians. My parents are in a local band called Hill Folk Noir and my parents are like punk. I think of them as punk rockers, even though for most of my life they've been an acoustic act. Um, but I do like just think of my parents as like the most punk rock badass people ever. Um, and then I grew up touring with them and I never really had an interest in being a punk rock musician, but I started learning instruments and I love music. Um, but I never wanted that for myself. I was very resistant of the idea of being like punk rock grace. So <laughs> I tried out for cheerleading in middle school and I became a competitive cheerleader and I was um, a competitive cheerleader almost all the way through high school, like cheer captain, top of the stunt, like that was my life. But I had this love for theater that was so ingrained. Like I would, I would write plays for my cousins to put on at Thanksgiving. Like Thanksgiving was my favorite because I could, I had access to all seven of my cousins who could then be in a play for me. Um, and I hadn't really ever thought about that as like, well, maybe I should do theater. Um, I was just like, no, I'm going to be uh, insert something here. Um, and I was really obsessed with this idea of being like a foreign diplomat or working in the foreign service somehow or in politics and policy and journalism. Um, and then my sophomore year of high school, I had a friend who was going to be in the school production at Boise High um, of Legally Blonde. And basically they were like, you can do a backflip, right? And I was like, yeah, I can do lots of, I can do tons of backflips, like backflips are my thing, I'm a cheerleader. And they're like, you should come be in the musical because you, we know you can dance. And so basically, like I went in, I sang like a, I think I sang If I Die Young, um, like not a musical theater song. I was like, I mean, I can sing guys, like I don't know shit about musicals. <laughs> um, and that was like, they just let me in and I started going to musical rehearsal and then theater started to like eat my life and I started failing math and I started like I was cheer captain my junior year and I was like oh no and my parents my dad was like you're not allowed to audition for the fall musical at Boise High you can't do it because your math grade is literally an F like you have a zero percent in that class um and I was like I like okay but then I auditioned anyway um, and then I was going to math tutoring four days a week after school and my parents like didn't, you know, going to math tutoring, math tutoring, rehearsal, that was rehearsal. I was going to rehearsal, um, but I was lying to them. And then it got to be show week and I still had an F and that is the, still the most trouble I've ever been in with my parents. <sighs> but for some reason they let me keep doing theater. Um, and then I graduated high school um, and went to Boise State cause I was really just like, didn't know what else I would do. I knew I wanted to go to college, but I like wasn't, I kind of missed the gap to apply to other schools. I didn't feel like I'd been doing theater long enough to really go to a place like Carnegie Mellon or to a BFA program. I didn't think I was ready. So I just went to Boise State and I started as a global studies major and also an anthropology major. 
and I got this idea like I'm going to be an archaeologist I guess um and then I was taking one class and it was play analysis with Phil Atlickson who's such a grumpy man um but I love him like I love him dearly he's my friend to this day but he's so grumpy and I was like wow I could I could do this like I could stick with theater I feel like I'm good at this like we were doing script analysis and I was like oh I really have like a, a head for this so then I transitioned into the theater program and I was like I'm gonna be a theater major now I don't know what I'm gonna do I guess I'll act or be an electrician or be a stage I was like just let me in let me help on the plays somehow um, and that kind of led to I got trained as a lighting designer and a scenic designer by Raquel Davis and Mike Baltzell. Um, and then I started doing some work as a stage manager and I've stage managed with Boise Bard. And I love all of that stuff. But what really drove me always was the story. So then I skipped a year of college. I'm, I was a junior at 18 and I was like, what the heck am I doing? I have zero focus. I just love theater. So I applied to NTI because I wanted to just go spend some time figuring out what my thing was. And that totally happened at NTI. I came out of it. I'm like, I'm a writer. I am a writer. I write musicals. Um, but that's totally not where I was going in to NTI. I think I told Emma, I was like, yeah, I just, I design and I stage manage. I don't really like acting, but that's kind of my journey into theater. Very messy. That's rad. Those are both like really cool, unique ways, I feel like to have found yourself in the, in the musical theater world. Um, so Grace, you are a, a recipient of the COVID cultural commissioning fund, right? Yeah. Put on by tree fort and the, uh, arts Idaho, the Morrison center and everyone involved with that. And, uh, your project is, was pitched as a musical piece. Tell us a little more about that whole process of, yeah. Um, so I wrote I wrote my first ever song for a musical at NTI this spring. Um, and I had a class with one of our teachers named Scott, and he basically was like, Grace, like, I like your concept for this musical. I just think you need to, like, actually think about songwriting a little more. Like, you could do this. You're good at it. And so then I, like, went, I went to a building on campus after class at, like, 11 p.m., and I pounded out this song, and I wrote, like, my first ever piece of musical theater song, um, and that was my, I was like, okay, I think I'm good at this. Um, and then COVID happened, and we all got sent home, and I was doing NTI, which, it, which was, like, a 16-hour day of class when we were on campus, moved to being, like, eight hours a day of Zoom. Um, and it was so strange and so hard and painful. And the, the CCC grant came up and I was kind of working on this project Blink, which has since become a much bigger project, but my mom kind of pushed me to apply for the CCC grant. And I was like, well, here's what I know. I really like writing plays and I really like musicals. And I figure I should write something about Idaho because I'm angry that I'm back in Idaho right now. So I pitched this musical about forest firefighters because my dad was a forest firefighter um, when I was, before I was born, he did like two seasons of forest firefighting. And I've always been really interested in that world. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do this project. And then as I sat down to start writing this play about forest firefighters, I was like, I have no way in. Like, I can't figure out my story bead. And even though I still really love that, that concept, and I think someday I might write it, I was just like, ah, geez, it's, this isn't happening. So then I just kind of started putting my pen to paper 
and figuring out like what really do I want to be writing about and it kind of led into these three separate pieces of plays that were just really mad angry plays about Idaho um, and about growing up in Idaho and being a teenager in Idaho and wanting out of Idaho, which is something I wanted so bad. Like I talk about wanting to be in the foreign service. Like I just wanted a reason to get on a plane and leave Idaho. And NTI was that for me in a lot of ways. It was like this chance to go be in Connecticut and meet all these people who weren't from Boise because like I grew growing up in Boise with musician parents and then becoming an artist. It's like an introduction of Grace Ward is also always oh and this is Travis and Allie's daughter and you know her parents her parents are a huge part of the Boise community so I was so excited to have this opportunity out of Idaho and then COVID sent me back to Idaho and I was so mad about it that these three plays kind of sprung out of that experience and that anger. Something I want to just jump in and say about Grace, especially with the residency she did, I have never met someone who just generates material and has such a creatively active brain like Grace does. So when she says that she's, you know, working on these three, she doesn't mean that she's like thinking about these three. She it, she means that she probably has like three completely written drafts of all of these things that she's talking about. You know, every time I talk to Grace, it's like a moment of like, oh yeah, I wrote this new play. You know, <laughs> she's like, literally, I wrote, no, I literally wrote this whole play. So going into the residency, it's, it was funny because I think a lot of people going into residencies are like, great, I guess I'm going to work on this thing. Uh, it's, I'm so excited. I have one project that I'm excited about. Meanwhile, for Grace Ward, it's a situation of, wow, which of the thousands of projects that I'm percolating on right now should be the focuses of this week. Um, and so going into that, we knew she wasn't feeling like super sparked by burn zone. So then we were like, okay, great. So let's structure it around cult and let's structure it around blink. That feels like something that, um, the other thing that like I've noticed about Grace, and we've talked about this a lot is Grace really likes to have a couple different projects that are exercising complete opposite parts of her creative brain, like cult and blink. You will literally never meet two projects that are such polar opposites from each other. Um, blink is like a super musical comedy, such a musical, like it screams musical. So you want to start a cult is she jokes about, it's like, what do you call it? It's like your edgy playwright play. It's like my, my just, I call it my angry Idaho play, but it's also just like, I don't know. It's like my Quentin Tarantino angry play that I have to write out. Like, let's kill everyone. Let's do this. That's this play. And what did you tell me what you said when you said you were work? why you were working on cult simultaneously with Blink? I don't know exactly what I told you then, but I know that cult has been like my it's I got to keep myself grounded, you know, like I can't get too <laughs> caught up in Blink is a musical about two women who invent a dating app in college and this dating app explodes and is like the most popular dating app in the world and it's about the repercussions of them becoming millionaires at 22 um and blink is a comedy blink is about cheating and it's like if a shonda rhimes show were a musical and cult is about a young woman whose sister dies in rexburg idaho and who this death is kind of covered up by the mormon church and so this young woman decides to start a cult um that's her she starts a yeah like a, a theater cult and she um burns a bunch of stuff down and it's structured in the same structure as a true crime documentary. Like rather than having action played out in scenes, it's all, it's like lines of dialogue to the audience as if a documentary structure. And so like what I really needed was because Blink is so 
fluffy. I needed something that was a completely different structural footprint to like, you know, you've got to have leg day and arm day <laughs> or, yeah, or you won't be able to run fast. That's my <laughs> analogy. I remember um, you told me you said you were working on cult because you needed to remind yourself that you could write. <laughs> you literally said those words to me and I said, Grace, no. what about writing a musical is not writing. Um, but all this to say too, that I think from the outside, what I observed about um, the incredible opportunity of the CCC um, grant and that residency was the opportunity to work on to and nurture two creative pieces that are such polar opposites and really kind of electrifying you in different ways and the chance to really actually, I mean, you developed them so much in that week too. You generated so much material and came so far with both of them. Um, so yeah, you came in and you were like, okay, I guess I'm going to work on these projects. But also I, it became so focused and so generative and such, I think I observed from the outside a really kind of transformative time for you especially in terms of your writing. I think I read in an email that you were, you were like sending Emma things every week or something like, yeah. what is that? What's that process like? Yeah. So Emma and I's like collaboration started with just Blink, which is my musical. Um, and it started, I would send her pretty much weekly a new draft of where I was at with Blink and she we'd talk through what's working what's not working what still doesn't make sense you know why what you know kiss sequence still doesn't feel earned um and how do we fix that and then we would set goals for the next week and I'd write to that and then I'd send her another new draft um and Emma is such a great director and also such a great dramaturg that she just thinks about scripts in a way that I don't and it's so helpful for me because like she said, I write really fast and I generate really fast. And sometimes I feel like I say this all the time, like I blacked out and wrote a musical and then I have to look back and figure out what happened. Um, and Emma's Emma and I, it was at a point where we were meeting weekly and now school's starting and other projects are happening and we're we meeting, we're meeting when we can to kind of work on Blink as this piece. Um, and developing it forward with a partner, I think, has helped me make discoveries about the characters that I would not have made on my own. And then it moved into this point where, like, Emma's kind of obsessed with me, and now she's, like, send me everything. Um, <laughs> and I'll, like, mention, you're, wrong. Like, you're just obsessed with me, Emma. Like, <laughs> I am, it's true. But uh, I'll send her, you know, this other piece of writing, this section of a screenplay, this thing. And I think that Emma has gotten in the last four months since we started on Blink to have a very strong idea of what my footprint is as a writer. And the spectacular thing about her is that she's doing that with three other writers right now too, right? You have three other musicals in the works and you're writing one. What? You're crazy. <laughs> that is true. I want to, I mean, I want to rewind though and say, first of all, me working on Blink came about because there was a reading of Blink part of act one at NTI for one of our final project situations. And I had read an excerpt of it for class and had, you know, kind of said to Grace, I was like, I love this. I love this. But then that reading happened. And I literally, I think I texted you, Grace. And I was like, Grace, we need to meet about this project. We need to talk about this. And then we had our first meeting. And I was, of course, super nervous, um, but so excited. And then from there, we started um, kind of, I think, working on it in seriousness and um, 
every week. And I think it's important to say too, for um, if you don't know, and you both, I'm sure maybe you do, or maybe you don't, but for anyone who's listening, um, just kind of about like the new musical development process, because it's kind of a weird breed um, and something that I have found there's not a ton of accurate or um, genuine information about. Because what we, what we kind of get into is the situation where people pay attention or perk up about a new musical once it's on Broadway. And that's great. It's great to see Hamilton when it's on Broadway, or it's great to see Hadestown when it's on Broadway. But what you're missing there is um, 12 years of a process to get it there. And so there's very little access to new musicals when they're in those stages. Um, for obvious reasons, obviously, writer's privacy. Um, and because it's before they picked up for projects. And so because of this, you know, we have this idea of we see something open on Broadway and we think that's the show that it is right um but we're missing obviously that transformation even like if you think of Sondheim shows now um or if you read say the book like Something Wonderful by Todd Pernham about uh Roger and Hammerstein you see that they had the these shows that we think of as classics now had the exact same development process where maybe they took a couple years and they were cutting songs all over the place and people were yelling at each other and saying this doesn't work this doesn't work this doesn't work um and then finally they get a show so the thing about new musicals that is really unique is that it's such a long incubation period uh, versus, you know, plays. I sometimes I joke with it. It's like, sometimes I'm like, plays are so easy because you just, yeah. <laughs> I feel like you write a play. We, you know, we develop it maybe for like a year or two years, et cetera. I write a lot of different drafts on it and then it's up. Right. And that's fantastic and amazing. But musicals take so long because there's so many moving pieces and it also depends on how the work is divvied up. So I'm working with one writer who is writing book music and lyrics and work writing it. Um, and that means that the process is, you know, it just takes more time, you know, because if there's a change yeah. or an edit, they have to change and edit every single aspect of that. Um, versus it's different than when two people are collaborating, like we're doing on Blink, where Grace is writing a book and lyrics, and then Aaron is writing the score. Um, it really varies. But basically, um, the time spent there's just so much to discover too, especially on a new music, an original musical that it sounds like, you know, we're like meeting every single week and it's like, okay, what's, what's changing in that time. But the truth is uh, that there can just be like a drastically different show, especially as I've learned with Grace from week to week, um, because yeah. in an original musical, it literally could go anywhere. We were reading a, I, a wonderful show a little bit ago that we were reading an early draft and then we were reading a later draft is kind of like a learning experience and saw that like, kind of quintessential facts about the show from early on completely changed like four years later. Um, and it's crazy to see that a show can change so much over time. So what we're doing with Blink right now is finding um, the seeds that feel right about the show and pulling those out and kind of building around it as we move forward and finding that structure. So if we have like this tent pole of like, okay, this ending feels right, then it's a matter of how do we get there? And it changes as everything is complete trial and error. So every week from week to week, it's a matter of like comparing drafts and generating and looking at it and just trying to get, um, and then once you get a draft, you feel like, okay, I feel great about this draft. That's when you do a reading of it. And then you're like, nope, none of this. We're scrapping the whole show. And then that's kind of the cycle and the cycle and the cycle until you have more workshops, more readings, and then eventually productions, maybe like probably five plus years into the development process. Anything you want to add to that, Grace? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I was just thinking about the last time we read Blink, we only had, a, we had an act one, and I was like, I feel really solid about this act one, and there's one character who I just, like, 
love this male like romantic character that's in the story um and we did this reading of it and we did the reading of it with a bunch of our nti cohort who i trust just maybe stupidly much but i do honestly believe these people like make the world turn and we read it with a bunch of them and then they were giving feedback and they're just some of the smartest theater makers i know and they're like you know it feels like this character you know, he kind of feels like a Hans from Frozen. Like, he feels like he's too good to be true. <laughs> and I was like, what? What do you mean he feels too good to be true? And sometimes, like, just one person pointing something out to you, like, gives... Then I was like, well, I mean, that's an interesting bead on the character. Like, let's explore. Um, or then I'm writing Blink alongside my partner, Aaron, who's writing the score. And Aaron is... Uh, film score writer primarily um, and he <laughs> is learning about musicals as we go but sometimes even just talking to him um, and it's worth noting that he's also my boyfriend so I talk to him in a way that I would don't you know like I don't talk to Emma the same way I talk to my boyfriend um, but he's a little critical in ways that maybe oh. Emma can't be and sometimes he'll just point out something he's like well i don't understand why you would do a flashback he's like flashbacks feel so corny to me um and then he'll like explain it explain his reasoning i'm like oh you're you're right like as a non-musical theater person deeply ingrained in this musical theater process i see where you're coming from with the flashbacks um and so then it's like well let's explore um and with a team as big as you have with like with a new play, it's a lot of times just the playwright working and then workshops. Maybe you're working with a dramaturg or a director. But with a new musical, you have your, a lot of times a director or a composer or some processes have a book writer, a lyricist, and a composer with a director. Or and more what than does one. that look like? Or more than one. Yeah. And a big team like that gives way for so much, so many new ideas that you have to explore. Is it ever too many ideas? Is it too... Is it too challenging sometimes to have all the different feedback? Emma Emma asks me, like, in our meetings, we'll get towards the end, we'll get, like, an hour and 15 minutes in, and she'll be like, okay, have I given you enough? Like, and she always tries to not overload me, which I think is funny, because I, I love having new things to run with. Like, I will just make to-do lists for myself. I'm like, okay, like, this week, um, I'm like, okay, I'm going to explore these ensemble characters. I'm going to figure out what their story is. Is there another plot line for them? Um, and I love having more layers of things to work on because I'm a workaholic um, and that's a problem. <laughs> but I, um, I feel like sometimes with some projects I feel overwhelmed, but I haven't felt that way with Blink. Um, like I just feel really just devoted to it. If someone has something that they're thinking about it, I want to hear it because it feels not true to the characters that I'm spending all this time with to not explore this potential that's there. If it doesn't work, I'll delete it. I'll delete it next week, but it feels worth it to me. Going from not on the writing side of it, there's a couple things I think about as well, where first of all, like sometimes you're in a meeting with a writer and you've been like, yeah, this act or like this act of some x y and z about this act isn't working like once we are loading on things and things and things eventually you can kind of see a writer be like <laughs> or like sometimes you know for whatever reason there's like a moment of like slight overwhelmingness and so I well first of all like I think it's really important to balance like the positive feedback and starting from a place of like I love this I love this so much and anything that I'm saying that is doesn't sound like I love it is coming from a place of love and coming from a place of making everything that is less strong meeting the stuff that is incredible um and 
but sometimes literally when there's so much feedback, like I think that it can perhaps be like, okay, then where do I even start? Like, how do I incorporate all these different elements? And that's kind of what I think about, like when the team expands past, like right now, for example, primarily talking about it, it's me and Grace. But once we have a dramaturg in and, um, or once we have, you know, a full creative team, I kind of see myself as the director or in some places as the dramaturg, as the person who will take in the feedback from other people, whether that be producers, stage managers, or anyone on the team, hold that for a second and then process it, digest, and then give it to the writer. I think also depending on where the piece is at, how the writer is feeling about it, and also the writer's familiarity with the team that's involved. Sometimes it's like, they don't need to hear this note. You know, like that use, that note is going to be completely useless to them, or it's going to just throw them off, right? Mm. And so like, for me, it's a matter of like, helping to process and be like, which note should I give now? Because sometimes like, in Grace, I, I'm sure you know this, but I never give you all my notes, ever. Oh, I know, um, yeah. Like, I have pages of, you know, I have all this stuff, and I have many things flagged where I'm like, X, Y, and Z, this is a note for like three months from now when we're thinking about this or like if we ever and I also have like rainy day notes so sometimes I have notes where I'm like if we ever get to a day where we just feel awesome about the play and we're twiddling our thumbs and we're like we don't have anything to work on these are the notes I'm gonna pull out um <laughs> and so yeah. like, there's different tiers but like sometimes some notes are relevant and sometimes some notes aren't and like so it also depends on like I try to always start by hearing where Grace is at. So at the beginning of our meeting, I'll ask like, what do you feel great about? What do you have questions about? Uh, what questions do you have? Kind of like to orient it. So then I gear what I'm talking about to all of that. Um, and then once you kind of have that mission, I'm like, oh, you're having questions about act two. That's perfect. I was having questions about act two. And then we jump into act two and like we go from there and from there we establish what's next versus like me jumping in and being like, so act one, uh, <laughs> X, Y, and Z. Um, there have also been two, at least two meetings where we've gone in and I've been like, I'm done with Blink. I'm not excited anymore. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm tired of staring at this document. What is this musical? Um, blah, blah, blah. And Emma is just, I love, something I love about working with you is that you, you don't, you know, you don't inflate me too much. Like sometimes you're like, Grace, this is a great project. I believe in you. You're doing great things. You're good at what you do. And sometimes you're like, oh, I see that you are struggling. Because at least for me personally, if I'm burnt out on a project, I don't need to hear how good I am. Because then I'm like, well, if I'm not good, why am I burnt out on my musical? <laughs> um, and Emma will be like, okay, let's try this. And there have been two times where Emma's made me. I mean, it's very hard for her to make me. But she is kind of like, just don't look at the document for this week. And write random stuff that might not even go into the musical just write scenes and have fun with it and both times she's done that i've come back with like 50 pages of new stuff for the musical it's so silly i can't take a break i'm a workaholic but last time she made me do it like i restructured the whole musical and figured out what the ending was and that was weird um blacked out and wrote a musical but i really appreciate having a collaborator who can guide me um, just back on track. I love that's, that. That's funny though because I always try to inflate you and I'm stressed to hear that sometimes you feel like you're not. Um, but I you know I think that's like but something that I think is really important about that is also the idea of creating a writer-centric process where that's also driven, and this sounds very woo-woo, but that's driven about how you in your gut are feeling about the piece, you know, because if you're feeling burnt out about the piece, anything you're going to make that week, you're, we're going to toss out in two weeks because you're going to realize that it's not the thing or it was forced. Um, and especially in a new musical process where so much of it is about endurance with a show, 
I have learned that like you have to step away if it's feeling if you feel like you can't write on it anymore great take a week don't look like for example don't look at it and then you'll think about it maybe you'll have a new musical or maybe you won't but um like taking the time to be in the process while simultaneously stepping out of it and saying how does this feel is this sustainable for like four years (laughs) and stepping out of it when you feel completely burnt out is really important and also like monitoring I was about to say monitoring Grace's gut. Um, (laughs) In some ways, that's what I mean, because it's monitoring how you feel about the piece, how you feel about the direction it's headed in um, and processing that and kind of going off of that and following that interest towards what's next with the piece or maybe following that gut instinct towards maybe I just need two weeks and then we'll come back and it'll be great and I'll be really excited about it again. Um, But that's that's what I think about on my end, um, especially when you come in and you're like, I camp with this show right now and I'm like that's probably for a reason and that's either because you're burnt out and you need a break or because we've gone in the wrong direction somewhere and like your gut you can't move forward because there's something that happened say like four scenes ago that is not right about the show and there's no creative juices blowing because you're blowing no creative juices blowing there's no creative juices flowing because we've missed we've missed a piece along the way or we've missed or we've kind of jammed two puzzle pieces together so I'm curious, like, this is a really intense, like, awesome-sounding collaborative process. How has the pandemic happening kind of in, in the beginning of this process, in the middle of this process, has that thrown, like, a big wrench in it? Or, I mean, have you always been kind of separated? How does that uh, impacting the, the whole thing? I mean, I started Blink in March at the O'Neill. And like I said, I basically went to, there's a building on campus called the pub and I went to the pub and I sat at this really out of tune piano and I just like, I was like, I know four chords, I can do this. Um, And I wrote this song called Milk Section. That's basically like, I'm hiding in the milk section from my husband who I think might be cheating on me. I don't want to believe he's cheating on me, but he's buying frozen gyoza for two and I don't eat frozen gyoza for two. So who the fuck is the frozen gyoza for two for? And this is the first, that was like the first verse of a musical I've ever sat down and written. (laughs) Um, And I was like, huh, that's actually kind of funny. I like that. Um, And so then it it got to be this product process where I was like well I'm just kind of working on this thing I really like where this is going then COVID hit and we COVID was like a weird experience on our campus because there were only 33 people in Mm. our class and we I feel like I was truly holding out hope that we could still stay on campus and keep doing school like I think I truly believed that that was going to happen and we had this week of we did labs where it was like 48 hours of work on 30 pages of a script and then you present it for everyone at the end of every week and we had this absolutely phenomenal week of labs where it just felt like everyone had hit this peak all 33 people on campus had just put their whole heart and soul into it while the world was falling apart with COVID and Broadway shut down on the Friday of that week and we were all you know thrown for loops like wow we're some of the only theater kids in the world who are putting on a show right now we've got to just give it our all. And then we had a Saturday of classes and I, I still, I think I truly believe that we would just get to stay on campus until that Sunday, our artistic director brought us all together and she was like, okay, you're going, you have to go home. Like you have to be gone by Wednesday. And so then we all, yeah, I've just, I've never sat in a room with 40 people and cried, but that's what happened. And I remember we have this friend, Marty, 
And Marty is like a linebacker. Like he just looks like a linebacker. He kind of acts like a linebacker. <laughs> Marty and I had been sitting in the cafeteria that week. He's like, yeah, I mean, I don't feel like I've ever been emotionally vulnerable until now. And then I remember looking across the room after we'd been told we had to buy our plane tickets home and seeing Marty crying and there's no one there. And I'm like, someone hug Marty. Like that was all I could think about. I was like, who's going to go hug Marty? Like it's awkward if I stand up, but someone's got to hug Marty. And then we all had to go call our parents and we were all like standing on the lawn talking to our, our families. Like I'm going to be home Wednesday. Um, and that was, that was the exact middle point of our semester. And so there's still a lot of regret for me of like, wow, what could we have gotten to? Like, what could, where could we have been if we'd all been able to stay together? But then we all went home and we all had our own mental <laughs> struggles as we tried to adjust to class being on Zoom. And then we, we, we still had this playwrights and librettists week where we were going to premiere everybody's project everybody had a play they'd been working on and we were going to read all of them and perform all of them and it felt like such like this triumph of we're going to spend this whole week and we're going to perform everybody's play and everyone's going to direct and everyone's going to act and that's where blink was read for the first time and so it, i just you know blink for me had felt like this thing that brought everyone so much joy on campus as i was like playing milk section for everyone for the first time in our composing class and everyone's like what the fuck is this song <laughs> this is hilarious weird song about a woman in a milk section right the rest of the musical grace and it felt like kind of my love letter to everyone that i okay i'm gonna finish this act of blink and i'm gonna read it for everyone and that'll be what i contribute and then of course that led to our collaboration and so all that whole long sad story to say it kind of feels like Blink wouldn't have even happened if there hadn't been a pandemic. And I don't know, like if, would Emma have reached out to me if we weren't already used to video chatting all the time anyway? <laughs> like, it felt like the natural transition was Emma and I would video chat once a week. And I don't even, I don't know what it would have been without the coronavirus. And I'm not thankful for the coronavirus in any way. But I also know that I don't think Blink would be what it was if it weren't for it. And that's weird. I don't know where you're at, Emma, on that. Yeah, thank you for all of that. Um, I'm totally on the same page. I do think that we would have still worked. It would just been different, right? Because yeah. uh, that was really wonderful, even though it was so terrible to leave our semester so early, um, is that we all had to adjust to talking to each other online versus typically you finish mm -hmm. a program in person and you leave and you're like, haha, we'll face them a few times. It'll be super awkward. And then we won't talk again because we were so used to being in person in the same place. Um, but because we had to end early and go virtual, we became really used to communicating via video chat, texting, um, Facebook messenger, et cetera. And because of that, it's, I mean, it's kind of done wonders collaboratively because I think um, there's a mindset, especially that I had before pre-pandemic where I was like, I work with the people who are close to me, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it's so easy, you know, you work on projects or you develop musicals or whatever you do um, with who's around you in person, right? But like COVID has challenged in such wonderful ways to be like, let me work with the people who are as far away as possible from me, which is very exciting. And I feel really grateful because what it means is that we've kind of established something that feels pretty, um, both sustainable and also continually accessible no matter where we are um, mm -hmm. versus 
like I, you know, I feel good. It's very rare that you get to be in the same place as a collaborator. And I think there's a lot of often like hurdles where it's like, how do we work together? It's virtual. But now, you know, Grace and I are working from basically a country apart and it's great. You know, we're, yeah. we've adjusted, we've learned how to collaborate like this. And so I have a lot of confidence that in the future, it'll be able to continue depending on our circumstances and where we are. And it kind of takes that weight off of that learning hurdle. And I think has led to a, just a richer process in some ways. Um, and also, I, you know, I really appreciate, I really appreciate have this, having the structure being like, we meet this time every week in the <laughs> yeah. pandemic. And I know I'm going to talk to Grace on Saturday, or it's kind of Mondays right now because things have been weird. Um, but having that structure means that I both get to like, in the pandemic, I'm sure, I wonder if you have all felt this way too, where sometimes it's like, I'm not going to have social interaction, right? And like, it's really hard sometimes to just call up a friend on the phone. It's kind of, we're all exhausted because of the pandemic and that fatigue is real. But honestly, meeting with Grace and other writers who I meet with throughout the week is kind of like my set in um, social interaction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it means that, you know, Grace and I have literally been forced to continue our friendship and continue our relationship. And the project is just an excuse to do so, right? Because now yeah. we get to talk every week, we've become much better friends. And, um, and that's kind of because of COVID and because of this time in this space. Like I was supposed to be um, in a really intense internship this summer in Summerstock, and it was going to be like very, very, very busy. And because of COVID and the distance, it means that I have been able to give the time and devoted the space to nurturing these projects and to working with these writers. And it's kind of like I've had like my own little DIY internship and new musical development mm -hmm. because I really have gotten to spend my summer thinking about these shows, dissecting these drafts, really carefully considering process and learning how to collaborate with writers, which is kind of what yeah. I was hoping for. So it's been in some ways kind of a blessing, even though obviously it's a disaster and our country is in shambles and fuck Trump. Period. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. I, Amen. Have, I have a little bracelet that says fuck Trump. My mom oh. gave it to me yesterday. That's amazing. I um I also just have to speak to like being from Idaho, I didn't even know anything about musical theater development. Like I I grew up in a musical family. My parents are musicians. My dad is a career musician, but I didn't know anything about how to become a musical theater writer. Um until and I didn't even think that was a thing I could do until my musical theater writing teacher Scott at NTI was like you're a good lyricist like you're good at that and I was like I didn't know that was a thing I could be good at um and so Emma has all these friends who write musicals who are her collaborators and that has opened this door for me to be in a book club with a bunch of musical theater writers to go to um Carnegie Mellon and like Emma excuse me because I haven't told you this before because this is so stupid and dorky like Carnegie Mellon has always felt like this like holy grail and I was like I could never get in I could never be friends with someone at Carnegie Mellon I could never like those people are out of my league I go to Boise State University right that was kind of my thought process so then Emma's like you want to be in my book club with uh these these people who also write musicals and I'm like these people study this stuff like one of our friends, Joe, was talking about this class he took and they were like learning about cultural music composing um, and or how to write, like just the things they learn feel so out of my league. But then I'm able to just talk with these people about musicals. And that's something that could not have happened if it weren't for COVID. 
none of us would be doing Zoom calls for our summer break, but I just genuinely look forward to my Zoom calls with my friends who I've never met in person, but I can't wait to see their plays when they open. Um, and it's, it's so interesting to me. And then I can be like, oh, I have this friend who is super, loves, loves musicals. He can come. And then of course he can come because it's just a Zoom call. Like being an Idahoan, Zoom has almost taken away this barrier for me. I could, I, I did an internship with Seven Devils Playwrights Conference and my stage manager was in New York and my director was in Boston and my actors were in six different uh, cities across the country and my playwright was in Portland and I could still work with all these people. And I didn't have to, you know, take, take two weeks off my job. I could just do this. And for someone from Idaho, it's felt so strangely like a gift. Um, to me, except for the country's in shambles and people are dying and this is not a gift in any way. This is a <laughs> pandemic, but there are like, that's like a weird shining light for me. Yeah, as awful as it is, I think it really is important to find the good in it or else, you know, you're just gonna be destroyed by how awful everything is. It's, I think it's okay to find the good like that. That's really cool. I do. I love, I love New Musical Book Club. It makes me so happy. It was my little, uh, my little passion project where I was like, I'm going to get all my wonderful collaborators in a room and we're going to talk about musicals. It's going to be super fun. Um, and that actually genuinely is what it has been. And mm -hmm. it kind of started also, I, I want to bring attention to this kind of like new musical development myth or like new work development myth that I'm sure you probably feel in, um, across many different industries where if people are working on multiple projects, there's this myth that there has to be com competition between them. Or it's like, for example, as a director, I'm working on say four or six different shows, right? And I had a teacher at, uh, at school at one point who said something along the lines of like, I mean, you know, people can be jealous, et cetera, but you know, they'll get over it, et cetera. Like it's normal to be working on different projects, but like people can be jealous, like writers can get jealous of that, et cetera. And I was like, what if that didn't have to be the case, right? What if instead of there being competition between say a director who's working on like many different things or like a writer who's working on different projects with different directors, what if instead that kind of group could come together into a cohort that could learn from each other and actually be a community because the other thing about like new musical writers is it's like <laughs> it's sort of rare it's not that rare but there aren't like a gazillion people at each institution who identify as musical writers it's a lot of like playwrights etc um and i was like i want to give these musical writers a community where they can uh, talk about what it's like to write a new musical and actually we can become a cohort together that supports each other. And where like, for example, say, if one of us were to get produced, that's great because it's, you know, it lifts up the others and it's a learning experience for all of us. Um, and also I think that like, and I, this is something we learned at NDI that I think peer-to-peer -peer mentorship is super important. So I wanted to give that opportunity for new musical writers, which is something I hadn't seen happening um, and to just put us all on the same team. So that's what, kind of where that came from as well. And I think it's important to kind of highlight that weird awkwardness that happens in new work development in the process. Yeah, and it's so weird because this is, this is my first musical or really even play development process. And so my first and only experience in it has been where I just feel genuinely like I'm friends with all the other writers Emma's working with. And it's felt like just this, like I've never felt alone in it because I've always had this, not team, but like cohort. Um, and it's so, it's so fun to like hear little snippets of how the other writers are progressing and, you know, talk about 
flashbacks and why are flashbacks so hard to figure out for a musical and those conversations aren't conversations I I feel like I have with anybody in my cohort at Boise State um, that which is no fault of Boise State it's not a musical theater school we don't even have a BFA theater program much less a musical theater program so it's really it's been really nice there are questions that excuse me there are questions that only fellow writers could answer like there excuse me there are so many times when grace and i are in conversation and i'm like i can't answer that you need to ask joe or like i can't answer that you need to ask someone else and i think that as a result that can get like pretty lonely you know when you don't have someone to talk about process or to talk about wow it's so hard to write a music wow how do you possibly get your head around a group number um that I think that kind of camaraderie and support system is super super important it's something that I would love to see more of because I think that there's emphasis of product over process and I think a lot of like inherent competition between shows in development in terms of like oh oh my god this show got to Broadway in seven years etc ah blah 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 or like this show's happening and this show's happening and this show's happening and I think that kind of like toxic competition first of all is a trademark of white supremacy but also is something that is very i think unique to like the commercial theater it's i mean it's part of everything but it's something that um really really is rampant in the commercial theater and it's something that i would love to see not exist <laughs> just take it away <laughs> this is like a bit of switching gears but i am wondering if there's any work that you're that's like really speaking to you right now like if you've been returning to any music or movies or scripts or anything that's really inspiring to you right now Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like I had, I was talking to my dad. I was sitting on the kitchen floor with my dad last night, which this has been this weird opportunity also with COVID is that I'm li living with my parents again. Um, and my parents aren't touring as a band. And I, I never got summer with my parents as a kid. Like I never got really late July nights sitting on the porch with my dad. That just, that's a sacrifice they made to be professional musicians. And so I got this chance last night. I was sitting with my dad talking to him and we, since the start of COVID and I, when I moved home, we've been cycling every night. There's five people in my family. We cycle out who gets to pick the movie and we watched a movie almost every night. And like we watched all of Avatar The Last Airbender and all of She-Ra and all of Sherlock and we watched all of Wes Anderson's movies and my brothers are 16 and um, 11 and it's crazy that they've gotten all this media intake but also for me as a writer to get to watch so many stories back to back I feel like film is what's been speaking to me the most even though I do write screenplays but I haven't been writing as much in the screenplay medium right now uh, I, I think I watched mid 90s the other day with the Jonah Hill and I watched it with my boyfriend um, and my boyfriend's, you know, like a skater hipster Boise guy. Um, and he, he, you showed it to me. He's like, you're going to think this is so funny. And I sat through mid nineties and I just cried through it. Like I just cried from like minute 23 to the end of the movie. It was just tears. And he's like, we can turn it off. Like we can turn it off. And I was like, no, I have to finish it. Like I have to know what's going on. Um, and I've kind of been obsessed with that movie since then because I can't figure out why it cut me so deep. Um, because it's not, like, it's a story about little boys, skater boys in the 90s. It's really not a, I'm, I'm a competitive cheerleader, um, born in 2000. Like, what? why did that movie make me cry so much? And I'm really obsessed with stories like that. 
I've been able to revisit like Juno and the Royal Tenenbaums and some of these movies that have really defined genres and that has helped me storytelling wise and also I've been binge watching How to Get Away with Murder and um, Grey's Anatomy and Scandal and that has played greatly into the writing of Blink but I just feel really inspired by film and that storytelling and there's so much because film, I feel, is a lot more accessible than theater, there's so much more nuance to the storytelling that happens there, um, and there's so much more variation, and I feel like there is a lot of variation in theater storytelling, but it's so much harder to reach, especially in Idaho. We only have two equity theaters. We have the Shakespeare Festival and the Contemporary Theater in Boise, and those are our two. That's what we have, um, and there's so much nuance in theater, but it's not accessible in Boise, but for film it is. And so I've been really inspired by that and it's led to a lot of thinking about how to how to expand the theater scene in Idaho and also just about how powerful film is right now. Because I would I would always rather watch a movie. Um, I would rather watch a crappy movie than watch a Zoom reading of a play uh, most of the time. Unless it's like one of my dear friends plays, I would rather watch a movie, I think, because theater is meant to be live. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's my ramble. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the great thing about consuming television and film right now is that you can pretend that the pandemic doesn't exist. <laughs> so it's like, this is the way that this was meant to be consumed. There's a screen, I can watch it. Amazing. Um, which I think is great versus every time that I see a reading and I want to, you know, there's so much fantastic Zoom theater and really awesome digital theater. Um, stuff going on and I have watched a couple productions or recordings that have been kind of archived and now being shown that have been really moving for me but genuinely it makes me sad to watch theater on a screen um so I also similarly have been watching a lot of television and film I've you know I spent so much of my time reading drafts I think I went into this pandemic I was like I'm gonna read every book that has been ever written and the truth and you know realizing that wasn't quite going to be the case but I have been really really inspired lately by writers like Adrian Marie Brown and Emergent Strategy and um, a lot of incredible BIPOC activists as well as just a lot of television um, a lot of Spanish television La Casa de Papel and Elite have been two that I've been watching that are just really great and watching a lot with my family so it's been wonderful to kind of have a communal experience around television has been really inspiring for me lately um we watched all of succession and Shit's creek and insecure um and all of that television has been really inspiring to me also leanne lahava's new album has been on repeat and is just incredible as well um so that's kind of been some of the stuff that i've been consuming but i also will say that a large part of what i consume is just drafts every week <laughs> drafts every week people are like what have you been reading and i'm like well i've read 25 drafts of blank <laughs> i know emma you and i have talked about this but i when the hamilton film dropped even like hamilton there's a lot to talk about with hamilton there are a lot of problematic elements and i could talk about hamilton for two hours um and i could talk i could probably talk about angelica and how she's written for an hour (laughs) but i won't um but watching the hamilton film like i i had to watch it like and it just it made me so sad like i went into my room afterwards i genuinely enjoyed it but then i just cried like 
I miss that. I miss the f I miss the fade to black at the end of a play, and I miss light cues, and I miss when light cues all hit perfectly. You know, like I know yeah. I miss that feeling, and it's even even with something as wonderfully pro shot as the Hamilton film, it's just not the same. And I'm, I think about like going back to when we were in London, the amount of theater we were consuming. Um, and we saw this really crappy production of Taming of the Shrew that I really despised and would talk crap about that for an hour or two. Um, but it was, I would go see that again if I could, you know, I just miss that. I miss the risks that come with theater. Um, this whole time I have been biting my tongue, resisting the urge to also ask you the questions that you have been asking us, but I would love to hear quickly, like, what have you both been consuming that's been exciting for you? Is that okay? Can I ask? Oh, yeah. Was... Okay, great. Yeah, honestly, like, you know, I also went into it thinking I'm going to get a ton of writing done. I'm going to read every book that's ever been written. I have a huge stack of books and it, it is really hard sometimes to like sit like that. Uh, so honestly, I've been watching a lot of the same shows as you and your family, Grace. Interestingly enough, you've listed a lot that, and just kind of trying to let go for a little bit and really just watch TV and a lot of cartoons. I've been revisiting a lot of like cartoons from my childhood just to kind of feel a little bit of peace, you know? Uh, weird mix of like comfort and then like, and then like wanting to have something intellectually interesting also. Yeah. It's weird. I don't know. I, I've been rereading a lot of short stories because that's kind of my default for revisiting a lot of uh, writers I love and then kind of like intermittently being able to write and then sometimes just being too depressed to write anything, mm -hmm. just consuming things. But I feel like I've kind of, I've been watching shows for comfort and movies for inspiration. So just going back mm. to, because I love movies and that's what, that's what I miss the most. That was like the basis of so many of my friendships is that we would just go see movies and then we would analyze movies forever. Um, so I've been trying to make time for that. And they're, the drive-in in Caldwell, I love. So I've been going out there whenever they're playing like good 90s movies and just like, and just like, I don't know. I just love being out there. It feels like an escape because it's far enough away from Boise. <laughs> I mean, it's not really, but it feels like I'm going on a journey and I don't go anywhere <laughs> anymore. So it's exciting to just go somewhere. Yeah, my my boyfriend and I went out to Parma to watch a drive-in movie. And I, I told Emma and I sounded really stupid because I was like, do you know what like a drive-in movie theater is, Emma? Do they have that on the East Coast? In Ohio? Um, in Ohio? In yes, Ohio. they have drive-in movies. <laughs> um, but Aaron and I went and saw, we saw the Beauty and the Beast remake and I... That, you know, like, not not what I would probably go see otherwise. Don't know if I'll ever watch it again. But it was really comforting to even just go watch a movie like Beauty and the Beast and, you know, go out and do something. Hmm. That was really nice. Yeah. That's been kind of what's saving me, is that you can still go to drive-ins and it feels safe. I wanted to ask really quickly. Oh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. No, don't go ahead, Emma. No, I was just going to ask Allison if there are any short story collections you'd recommend. <laughs> well, okay. So I know that we were just talking about this, Joe, but like I, I have been so comforted by Kelly Link because oh. she's it's so much fun. It's just fun. You yes. Know, like sometimes I really bum myself out. Like I go down these routes where I'm reading like beautiful stories I love, like like Lawns by Mona Simpson. It's like one of my favorite, like I think 
one of the best short stories ever written. And then, but I'm so sad. Like I start crying the moment I start reading that story. And then I just go read Kelly Link and she's such a beautiful writer, but it's so fun. And she just mixes fantasy and like a bit of horror. And it's just a joy to read. It makes me want to create something just for fun instead of like having it be so heavy all the time. Her newer collection, Get in Trouble, I've actually like read a couple times just because they, I don't know, they just like hit me aesthetically partly. And then she's just fun. I was going to say, I've read that, uh, I'm blanking on the title, but from that collection, the one with like the, the Fae and the, the house that, yes, yeah, I, yeah. I've read that story maybe like six times since the pandemic started. Just that one story. I haven't even finished the collection because I keep going back to the first two stories because they're, yeah, so Get in Trouble by Kelly Link is really There's good. one story that like takes place in a nudist colony and they're like, something yeah. in a nudist colony. And it's sort of like a, story, a love story. It's so fantastic. It, anyway, that's what I would recommend for some, for like some pandemic reading. It seems like good pandemic reading. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds absolutely fantastic. You guys Thank have you. like fun projects that you have, like just for fun projects that you're working on to stay alive. This podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's honestly been a, a saving grace is being able to chat with people like this. Yeah. It's, it's been great, although I feel like I'm just so out of practice talking to anyone. So yeah, right. I don't know. I, I feel like everything I've personally been writing is really dark. And then I have these moments where it's like I go back to some stories I was excited about. And I've been giving myself prompts that I'm I, like just recently that have been more fun because I studied like um, physics and science writing in grad school. So I've been giving myself oh, cool. physics prompts, which has been kind of fun. Um, and so I have those. Wait, moments. I'm sorry. Rewind for a second. What does like a physics prompt look like? Well, I, I mean, I'm sure like actual scientists would find it ridiculous, but I just get so caught up in, in like the, some of the, like the event horizon on a black hole. And so playing around with that idea in like, cause I feel like we're on the, on the event horizon of a black hole right now, but it's still fun because it just ignites. I think partly it just reminds me of a time like 10 years ago when I was in a very different, I was in New York City and we could all just be together and I was studying all these things and so that's where I've been. That's so cool. And then I've been writing like certain things that like I told Joe, I told our friend David, he's the only one I told that I was working on this project. He's like, he was just kind of like, huh? Because it's just so dark. Like I know no one wants to read it, but I'm just still working on it for myself. Emma Cordray probably wants to read it though. (laughs) I'll read it. I'm a big fan, Allison. <laughs> I have to send it to you. <laughs> but what is it? I don't know if I should say. It's just so, it's like, it's, it's very, it's a lot. Maybe, maybe in another conversation we'll get into it. <laughs> Absolutely. After the recording sounds, button's done. Yeah. yeah. That sounds great though. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you're taking the time to process and sometimes, you know, it has to be dark. We're living in dark times. Yeah. It has to be very dark. That happens to me sometimes as a writer where I'll finish something, especially with scripts, and I'll look at it, I'll be like, what the fuck, Grace? Like, you can't, no one, you can't ask an actor to do that. That's, that's terrible. You're a terrible human, Grace. And then it's like, okay, control it, delete. And it was a nice hour of writing. (laughs) Sometimes you do just have to have those files or those notebooks or whatever of, you know, it's a good way to process, I think. Or do you save them? Do you save all A lot of times I delete stuff. Really? I try really hard not to be precious about 
I feel like with theater writing, you know, this is kind of gross theater person talking, but I feel like with theater writing, there is a little bit of a responsibility of at some point this will end up in the hands of an actor and as someone who's worked as an actor, um, I try just really hard to not be precious about my words because I know that at some point someone is going to have to embody this. Um, and what will that mean when they have to do that? Like with Blink, which I've been working on for months and I just, you know, I'm so immersed in this project. I'd say there are like three songs or a couple sequences of dialogue that I could not see myself deleting. I can see myself editing, but I'm just precious about them milk section and then there's this new song called every computer's a feminist um and i feel like those those might be the two sections in blink that i can't i can't get rid of but i always try to just not be precious about playwriting i'm with poetry i don't usually delete it if it's dark i keep it and then i find it and like barf a couple years later I'm like what yeah. was i doing yeah. yeah i even i mean even if you were to delete it like any draft that you, the part of my job too, is I have all of the drafts. I have all of them. I track all of the changes between them. So even if Grace, you get it off your computer, if you were to be like, Emma, do you have this song? I'd be like, funny, you should ask that Grace. And draft number 14, I do have that song saved. Um, so that's, so like, I'll keep them so that you can delete them. But I'm curious, Allison, do you normally keep everything? And Joe, do you normally keep everything? I do. I, and I also like, Joe and I are part of the same workshop. Um, mm. and it's like being in a workshop is great because I know that there's like an email tra a trail of like I, yeah finding things. Um, but I don't have a good I don't have a good like naming system. Like things are just kind of a mess. Oh, it's a mess. I I forget who it was who gave me this advice when I was you know having a hard time editing like fiction pieces. But just especially if you're being precious about it, like you're saying, Grace, like I can cut it, put it in a document. It still exists. I didn't kill my darling or whatever. But it doesn't have to be in that same piece. So I have all this just mess of like cut and pasted, unrelated, pretty awful paragraphs most of the time that I just I feel passionate about. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I I save everything. It's like a digital hoarder of work. It's gonna be hard to go through someday. But you know. That's how Google Drive's gonna get us. That they're gonna have to eventually. I'm gonna fill up my Google Drive, and I'm gonna have to start paying them. Yeah every month so start i start a new email so or yeah start someone a new email. else you know yeah <laughs> keep yeah, track of like 30 me, my disk was almost full i was like hmm i wonder why, <laughs> why? <laughs> hilarious that's such a i've had to start uh labeling thumb drives emma because i ran into that same oh problem so i'll put it on a thumb drive and i just have a box of it's ridiculous. I should probably get rid of some of it, but no, keep no. it and some yeah. put it in a time capsule, and someday you can dig it up and oh, that would be, that say, would be "Wow!" Yeah. You could say, "Wow, COVID." <laughs> what was what was that? Uh, who was she? That's something <laughs> funny though about Blink, though, is because I started writing musicals with Blink. Blink is like my first project in it. So Emma brought this up the other day, how much growing has happened just writing with it. So I'm kind of insecure about the fact that Emma has some of my first drafts because oh, I was yeah. just like learning what I was doing. And now I feel like a lot better at it, but I definitely know that in a year I'm going to be embarrassed of everything that exists now. One of my teachers at school taught me this really incredible, I mean, it's really not that complex, but to me it's this really incredible system of tracking changes from draft to draft, basically where you go through side by side and you highlight everything that's new and you cross out everything that's old, like 
line, literally line by line. So it's not, you know, it's not all that like sophisticated, but it's amazing to then pull up two drafts and then be able to see exactly what changed. And then you can start to process why. So like I will normally read, uh, read the new draft and like experience it. And then I'll put the old draft up and then I will be like, I'm not going to think about anything about how I feel about any of this until I track all the changes. And then I'll go in a zombie state through and I'll track everything. And then I'll be like, Okay, now how do I feel about it? But it's really cool to be able to look back, Grace. Someday, someday I'll share it all with you. Uh, maybe it would be good for you to have access to it too. I'll put it on Drive, and then you can see too. You know, even like, oh, Grace changed this conjunction. <laughs> I don't know why I went to conjunction, but changed this conjunction from draft. <laughs> Interesting. Um, it's cool to be able to like kind of see progress in that way, and even in like the small moments too. I wonder if you took, I wonder, Allison or Joe, if you took drafts of something and you compared them that way and you'd be like, what? <laughs> like, what I, I did that the other day with the story. Oh, yeah. it, was, it was wild. Yeah. Oh. Uh, I am getting frantic texts from Christian wondering if there's any possibility of, of sharing any snippets of a song from uh, Blink, what you're working on. Can I say that uh, I think yes. you should sing Milk Section? Yes. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> okay. Let me I pull can provide, it up. like... I can provide like subtle drumming. <laughs> yes, thank you. I did. I had okay. So I'm. I wrote milk section at the piano. I'm pulling. I'm talking while I pull this up, and I then brought on Aaron to write the the score for it. But I did like the other day we were sitting, and I was like, Aaron, actually, don't worry about milk section. Like I, that one's mine. I can compose that, and then I will need your help orchestrating it. But you don't need to worry about it because that one's mine. Um, and that was so comforting to me because I already know the chords for that one. And it's nice, nice to know that he's not going to go in and change it. Oh my God. I just re-edited this, the structure of this and it's so much further into the draft than it used to be. Here it is. Okay. Oh, that's so true. That's true. I forgot about that. It used to be on like page 20. Now it's page 58. <laughs> Emma, do you want to, do you want to provide a lead up to what this moment is? Oh, that's a great question. I would love to, Grace. Um, <laughs> so basically at this point in the show, we have met our two protagonists, Sadie and Natalie, at MIT as 18-year-olds as they start their freshman year of college. Um, basically, they are uh, blue-eyed and bushy-tailed as they are so excited to uh, be in school. Cool. And Natalie is the idea for this blink. And we see them uh, as that kind of comes to fruition. And we see Sadie frantically coding this project and making it. And then finally, um, in this huge musical number in true musical theater fashion, we fast forward to a blink commercial 10 years later to our two protagonists at age um, in their late 20s uh, as adults who have now apparently, in quotes, achieved the dream, right, of having like a multi-million dollar app and being super successful and moguls. Uh, But turns out they're both incredibly unhappy and some of that comes from very early career success and being uh, very young and perhaps literally the age of 21 when they make millions. And um, a little bit into the act, we, or a little bit into, once we catch up with them at their as their older selves, Sadie is largely unhappy in her relationship, largely unhappy in her job, largely unhappy in pretty much everything there is to be unhappy about. Um, and she's shopping at Trader Joe's because we love a little good Trader Joe's um, promotion. And she hears her husband in the next aisle, her husband Mitch, who. Um, they've kind of had a fraught relationship as of late. He really wants to have kids. Sadie doesn't. And she's been suspecting that he's been cheating on her. And she hears him on the phone saying, 
Dina or saying <laughs> to someone, we changed it, it's not Dina anymore, I forgot. Basically saying to someone, okay, I'll pick up the gyoza, see you soon, babe. Um, and she's like, that bitch, babe, or something. And um, and she launched, yeah, baby. We cha- it, was, it was Dina, it was Natalie, it was all these different names. Um, but basically she, this song comes fresh after her hearing that her husband is definitively cheating on her. And this is kind of her, um, quarter life crisis meltdown. I'm hiding in the milk section and everything. It's a disaster. Take it away, Grace. (laughs) Okay. Baby, that bitch. I'm hiding in the milk section from my husband who I think might be cheating on me. I don't want to believe he's cheating on me, but he's buying frozen gyoza for two and I don't eat frozen gyoza for two. So who the fuck is the frozen gyoza for two for? Before all this, I'd never believe he'd cheat on me, but the gyoza leads me to believe he is not what he seems. So I'm hiding in the milk section. I'm hiding in the dairy out from the man I said I'd love until the end of time because he made an account on the app his wife invented. That's me. I invented this app and now he might be using it to match with other women who aren't me and what kind of husband uses his wife dating app to match with women who aren't his wife. I'm angry so I'm hiding in the milk section. I've been told my brain moves too fast. I overthink things so things never last. But I guess I assumed we were long term considering he's my husband. I'm angry, so I'm hiding in the milk section. I always thought I was the smartest girl I knew because I never had any sort of issue reading or writing or writing code or making apps except apparently all men sucks and they use apps to cheat on wives with ugly girls who they buy cheap wine. I guess I shouldn't assume she's ugly. I really want to support other women, but not the other women my husband is fucking. I'm angry, so I'm hiding in the milk section. In my life, never once have I been in the right place at the right time. I can work, I can code, but I can't find any joy standing here between the half and half and the soy, asking the almond milk how to be happy again. But I see his face and I'm ready to commit a crime. But instead, I hide in the milk section, in the milk section, in the milk section. Boom, boom. my favorite lyric of the whole thing is i can't find any joy hiding between the half and half and the soy that was a recent addition and when i read it for the first time i was like i was like this is amazing my favorite line is still i really want to support other women but not the other women my husband is fucking that's to this day this is a great line my (laughs) that's what i got i love that that was so good thank you grace (laughs) hi everyone it's allison and the future again um i wanted to just throw a note in here because there's not really an easy transition to this next segment of the interview but um at one point after we were done recording initially christian when our story fort director was wondering if perhaps emma would like to sing something also so i'm going to put a clip of that in next and then we'll play the rest of the interview after that 
This is ter- I'm terrified, but I, w- I can't say no because I have to face my fears. <laughs> All right, so brilliant fun fact about Emma Cordray. In our first week at NTI, we had this devising project where we were basically all sent out into s- small groups, and they said, go create a like, 15-minute theater piece. Like, here's do some generative writing, go. Um, and Emma's group did this like incredible piece. It just blew me away. But Emma sang in it and I was like who is this girl I, I think I like fell in love with Emma it was incredible um and Emma sings and also directs and take it away oh my gosh okay this is from a musical called Birds and Bean Sprouts written by Joe Young um and I first sang this song because we couldn't get an actor in time to sing a demo and so I said okay I guess I have to sing it so we have a recording of this um this is a song called on the floor the show is about a young girl um, named Shaylee and she's growing up in central Oregon and her mother disappeared when she was five years old and she's getting ready to graduate high school and she's kind of dealing with the fact that she's missing her mother and trying to find herself and graduate and um she's a songwriter and so this is a song that she writes herself called on the floor um and it talks about how she feels paralyzed and she can't get up off the floor um, and kind of stuck and doesn't know how to move forward. Okay. I don't know what I want anymore. I think I want clarity. I'm lying on the floor. My thoughts are circling me. I don't want to be down no more. And I know so much more than ever before. And I just want to take a step on and through the door. But Damn. I had one last thing, Grace. Uh, when we were at the reading at the Bloom, kind of when you were finishing out uh, the presentation, you had a few words talking about theater and the future of theater and COVID and how people can support it. So I don't know, Grace and Emma, if you have ideas, some brief ideas to close this out on what we can be doing to ensure that theater is still there for us in some fashion, you know, post-pandemic. Maybe a little heavier than the milk section. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to remember the what theater is built on and that the institution of theater, especially in the United States, is built on taking advantage of a lot of people. Um, it's built on elitism, it's built on gatekeeping, um, and all of these things. We have this opportunity as theater makers to sit with, sit with the fact that we don't have theater right now and think about what we want it to be when it comes back and i think it's very important that we begin to dispel a lot of a lot of what happens in theater and we begin to actually just speak out and start to make theater a better place um and i think a lot of that will come with supporting the next generation of theater makers not just me i'm a white cis woman i think there's so many theater makers in the world who need or it's time for more voices to be elevated um, Emma, you and I were brainstorming earlier, how do you support younger theater makers? And like, first of all, hire us. 
<laughs> um, we're all going to have this two-year gap in our resumes. Hire us. Uh, a lot of us won't finish our degrees. Hire us. Like, it's that simple. Give, provide young theater makers the opportunities to get good at their craft um, because, like, so many people are ready. We're, like, ready to take the torch and make this industry a better place, um, but we can't do that if we're not provided the opportunity. Um, I don't know, Emma, if you have other things. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I would love to see a relief bill for artists, um, but that's a little bit outside of the hands of, you know, the everyday people. But I think that the theater community and all arts communities right now are really hurting. In fact, the community is there, but the industry is non-existent. And I see, you know, I was talking to a friend yesterday who is in STEM, and she's like, I think I got a job offer for the year after I graduate. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, there's no jobs to be had in my industry or in any arts-related industry. So first of all, for First and foremost, I say wear a mask, you know, like fight this pandemic once and for all. Please vote some Democrats into office. That's what I'm going to say first and foremost is that you can't help the theater community until you help the pandemic. And to help the pandemic, you have to be safe and you have to take it seriously. And everything in my life is on hold and my family's life is on hold because of the pandemic and that that is the first big thing. And once we tackle that, if we can then we can start to think about the arts. But I am totally with Grace in that I think that what I would like this time to be is a call to, I don't want to say a call to arms because that's a militaristic term, but I think it's a call to uh, a big realization that we can radically reconstruct the theater. I think there's a lot of actually opportunities in the theater for it to be a platform that is uh, community driven and gives back and is driven by more than just profit, capitalism, and on the backs of white supremacy. And I would love to see it become an institution that is a little bit more, um, artist-driven, process-driven, and kind of <laughs> community-driven, I guess. Um, and I think that because I just, I think that the main thing that we can do for theater right now is to not let it go back to the way it was before, not to continue supporting theater in the way that theater existed before this time, but to support a theater that is radically reimagined. Um, and some of that comes from funding. A lot of that also comes from, as Grace is saying, hire us. But I think that comes from, you know, especially asking young people, but asking everyone to radically reconsider what this industry could look like and how we could build a better theater. Um, but it's, it's really hard for me to even imagine what we can do for theater right now, because there is no theater. And also it's the other thing about it is that it's such a classist and ageist medium that it feels like there's not anything that I can do, even though, you know, I have ideas and thoughts, et cetera, but it feels like there's, um, I can't really say, oh, we need to do this, this, and help this to help theater after this, because, you know, what can I say? What about the producers who are running the industry? Um, but I would love to see people go theater, go to theater and give it a chance when it is safe, support it with their money, support it with their like time um, to validate it, to care about shows. There are a lot of artists who are out of jobs now. Hire them in a different industry, even if they don't have experience in that industry. Bring in artists and recognize that their expertise as a creative person is valid in any industry. We can help with public health. We can help with transportation. We can help with um, immigration. We can help with anything because we have a different creative mindset and skills to bring to the table. And I would love to see kind of an embracing of artists, even as they're pivoting to different industries right now, um, out of necessity. And so trust us and let us let us apply our skills I think in different areas is something I've been thinking about a lot um, but 
wear a mask. <laughs> That's yeah. what I'll end on. And wear a mask, that. please. Hopping on to the Boise element of this, because I feel like a lot of the listeners are Boise community members. First of all, the fact that Story for it was willing to let two college-aged young theater makers come yes. on to their podcast and just give us this platform is incredible to me. Um, and it feels, it makes me very proud of my community and uh, me being a CCC grant recipient as a young college-age writer feels very, it makes me proud of my community. Um, I do think that Boise has, Boise has a lot of work to do. Um, Idaho has three equity theaters. Um, I can't think of any city in the East Coast where three equity theaters, only three exist. Um, and I think when you will have that, when you have two equity theaters in the city of Boise, you are not getting the diversity you need in your theater voices. Um, I, I really appreciate BCT and I really appreciate the Idaho Shakespeare Festival, but they have two very specific voices. Um, a lot of this voice is led by white men and men specifically in the generation above me and the generation above that. Um, and I think that how, how are we supposed to tell the stories that are leading us into the post-COVID world uh, if the storytellers are not diverse? Um, and I think Idaho really just needs to rethink why why aren't we elevating more than just two two storytelling organizations and i think places like story for it um and fringe theaters like homegrown and boise bard um and uh odd hours which is a student-run theater company elevating those voices and giving those artists like recognition and validation for the hard work they put in is what boise needs as theater begins to hopefully after the pandemic rebound like just really think about your patronage and your support of your artists and your storytellers and story fort is such a such a proponent of that and i'm so thankful for tree fort and story fort in our community but i i still think boise can do so much better boise has so much growing to do grace i know you weren't super stoked about having to come back to idaho but we're glad to have you back for a while thank you I'm both. finding the <laughs> i'm finding the joy in being back here between the half and half in the soy <laughs> before we sign off do you want to plug anything like uh, where can we find you on the internet where can we keep tabs on the projects you're working on let the people know websites social medias whatever you want to plug well i know you can find emma cordray on instagram at emma cordray and you have a website but i don't know the link um and I also have Instagram and I have a website that I'm working on and I'm not going to plug it because it's not ready, but I also have a project that will be dropping um, in October that I will be posting about um, that is like a horror uh, narrative podcast that I'm working on um, with some other writers and it's very secret still, but keep your eyes peeled for that announcement um, and listen to that. Uh, Emma, is there anything to add on there? Yeah. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Emma Cordray, and my uh, website is in my Instagram bio, and uh, I am working with a wonderful organization called Braving the Bard that's working on making Shakespeare accessible through um, radio play versions of uh, Shakespeare with uh, exciting takes on all the classics and right now the comedies. And I would also like to uplift um, Alexis Elisa Macedo, who I've been working on an audio drama of her play Red Hoodie, and we are soon to be releasing it as a podcast. Um, so news on that soon. Cool. Allison, am I forgetting anything in the, it's been a while since we've. Well, maybe Joe, we should all say our, our closing line. 
Oh, yeah, we like to close with, uh, we'll see you at the fest. We'll see you, we'll at, the see you at the fest. <laughs> but tomorrow never came.